Today we continue our series uh, on our values as a church. So we started with gospel first and always. We talked about our unique calling, our gifting in the body of Christ that we are to use to share that one gospel. Last week we talked about intentional innovation from 1 Corinthians 9. How as a church we want to be like Paul and being all things to all people in order that we might win some. Laying aside our preferences in order to find creative and fresh ways to get the gospel to people. And this week we're going to talk about what it looks like when we cross cultures. And so what a fitting lead in to our message today. And so Tanya and I, uh, we got married uh, in September of 1997. And the very next week, we moved to North Alabama. Now we were both raised in Illinois. Uh, The summer before, Tanya worked as a nanny for a Wall Street family in New Canaan, Connecticut. I served with the sports ministry team in inner city Baltimore, Maryland. And let's just say that North Alabama was neither of those places. Uh, It was unique for us. And I grew up a little farther south, so I kind of blended in a little more easily. Uh, But one of the things we realized is we knew we were taking a new ministry assignment. We didn't realize just how much we were crossing cultures. We quickly discovered that sweet tea is considered an essential food item in the south. That the Friday is God's approved way of preparing food. And we discovered the college football, it was just a sport where Tanya and I grew up. It was a religion in the South. I mean, Alabama, Auburn, they wanted us to choose. And when we resisted, they were trying to, you know, get us to pick a side for our entire four years in North Alabama. Tanya would go to the grocery store or go to Walmart and she would come home and say, I just wanted to check out, but the, the clerk wanted to know my whole life story. Like, what's that all about? For me, I couldn't get over a fact that there was a tanning bed in every single establishment. I mean, video rental and tanning, antique stores and tanning, oil change in Somerville, Alabama and tanning. And I'm not even joking, right? There was a tan. It was just incredible. And then, of course, there was the language barrier. We had to learn y'all, all y'all and all y'alls as well. We, we couldn't just go do things anymore. You can't just do things in Alabama. You have to first tell people you're fixing to do something, right? So we had to adapt and we had to learn how to navigate all of this. I took Tanya to a pastor's conference and it was literally like we were in a foreign country because the preacher would preach. He'd get to his big point or his punchline and she'd be like, what did he say? What does that mean? And there would be some cultural reference to the South that she just didn't understand. So one of our favorite stories, one of her favorite stories, as we were talking about it the other day, is that we were over to a family's house for dinner. And hear me say, man, the people there were incredible to us. They were always taking care of us, inviting us over for meals, bringing us furniture for the parsonage we were living in. They, they treated us so well. And so they had us over often for dinner, these different families would. And so we were, you know, talking as you do before dinner. And finally, the mom, you know, kind of piped up and said, all right, y'all, it's time for us to go see it. And Tanya was like, I thought we were here to eat dinner, but there's something that she wants us to see. Like, that's what she's thinking in her mind. And so, of course, you know how it goes. Nobody like actually goes at the first call. So again, a few minutes go by and she says it again. Come on, you all. It's time for us to go see it. And Tanya was finally like, what, what is it that you want us to see? And she was like, sit. It's time for us to go sit down and eat dinner. I'm glad she explained it or we'd still be waiting to see it to this day, confused about what it was. And so one of the things that you encounter, right, when you move to a new place, when you encounter a new culture is there's a new way of life. There's a different way of thinking. 
One of the things as we look at the gospel today crossing cultures that is so amazing to me is is that the gospel doesn't come with any cultural baggage attached to it. The early church, through the power of the Holy Spirit and his wisdom, made that clear. The gospel is clear, and we should do everything we can to make it clear to people who need it. Because there are many Millions, billions of people in our world, unreached people groups, unengaged people groups who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to look at how the the gospel crossed a massive barrier so that it could continue spreading to the nations. The gospel has a unique ability to engage all people groups, all tribes, all nations, all languages. And today we need to be sure that as a church we're aligned with that mission so that we can get the gospel to people who need it. Stand with me in honor of God's word as we read from Acts chapter 15. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 and keep your Bibles open as we'll look at some of the rest of that passage as well. Now some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders gathered to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers and sisters, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they are. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Pray with me this morning. Lord Jesus, we are saved by grace through faith in you alone. Remind us of that incredible truth today. And may we be careful in our gospel conversations, in our reaching out to the world that has come to us and the world that we're called to go to, that we point people to nothing but Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So let's get ourselves up to speed with what was happening in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is an incredible book because as C.S. Lewis said, we see Aslan on the move. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus declares to his disciples, the Holy Spirit will come on you in power and you will be my witnesses. Starting right where you're at in Jerusalem. You'll be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. So that's the region and the Samaritans were the hated enemies of the Jews, to people who are different from you, who think 
differently than you do. And you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And Luke, with skill, tracing the work of the Holy Spirit, literally you can lay out that outline on top of the book of Acts and you can see how God did just that very thing. In Acts chapter 2, in the day of Pentecost, right, the gospel explodes in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit comes on the church, as Brandon already noted. They hear, right, in their own language, God's people speaking. And so Peter, of all people, Peter, who just a few weeks ago had denied Jesus, was afraid for his life, now stands up boldly in the same city in which Jesus had been crucified and preaches the gospel and calls people to repent and believe. And they do. And 120 believers becomes over 3,000 on that day as they're baptized and added to the church. And the witness of the early church just begins to grow to the point that it begins to offend and trouble the Jewish leaders. So they're constantly arresting the early church, giving them threats. And then eventually in Acts chapter 8, persecution breaks out. And so, of course, this was an attempt to stop people speaking in the name of Jesus, to stop the spread of the gospel. But the word in Acts 8 that Luke chooses for scattered is the word of a farmer sowing seeds. So what Satan intended to sabotage the mission of the church, instead the Holy Spirit used to spread it. Because as the Christians ran for their very lives, guess what they wouldn't stop talking about? Jesus. And so they went to villages and communities and cities throughout Israel, sharing the good news of Christ. And the gospel began to break down barriers. In Acts chapter 10, God leads Peter to the home of a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius, who is a God-fearer, he's interested in the things of God, fascinated by God's people. He comes to faith in Christ Jesus, and he and his whole household is baptized. In Acts chapter 11, the gospel is in Antioch, Syrian Antioch, and there are people there. We don't even know their names, but they, as we talked about last week, intentionally innovate, and they share the gospel with people without a Jewish background. And so those people come to faith in Christ. And so now you have the Gentile mission that is growing. And in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are called up and out of that church to go on the world's first mission journey. And you see the gospel reaching new cities and and, and Asia Minor for the very first time. And so the gospel is on the move. And you and I get excited about that. We're like, yes, go God. But believe it or not, there were some church people that weren't happy about it. You know why? Because these new Gentiles, these new outsiders, they, they don't have our background. They don't do things the way that we've always done them. They're not just like us. And so one of the things that we have to recognize is that when the, when the gospel is on the move, here's our first point this morning, the gospel will be disputed. People have always tried to manipulate the gospel. They've tried to bend it right to their own preferences as we talked about last week. If we're not careful, we begin to load the gospel down with baggage. And so we see a really important moment. Acts 15 is a turning point in history. This is one of those moments in the church. I know in most of your Bibles, it's labeled the Jerusalem Council. And we're like, man, what is more boring than that? Like a, sounds like a church business meeting to me. But the reality is, is this moment is a turning point in the church. It's a turning point for the gospel because it's going to affect everything that happens after it. And so there is this controversy, and really it's based around this. How do converts from new people groups assimilate into the church? How does that happen? There's an old joke that anytime two Baptists get together, you get one of two things. You either get a casserole or a controversy. Been watching the news lately, you've seen we've had a lot of controversy. Sometimes you get both. 
And so in this story, everything is going well until there is this group of people who come out of a Jewish background who in essence say all of these new people who aren't Jews, well, they really need to become Jews first and then they can be followers of Jesus. Then they get welcomed into the family. And most of you are sitting there today hearing that saying that sounds ridiculous, but hang on because I believe that these people were sincere. After all, Jesus's cultural background was what? He was a Jew. The disciples, they were all Jews. The Messiah was predicted in the Old Testament. And so there was, I'm sure, part of their thinking, how can you fully understand and grasp the good news of the gospel if you don't know and follow the Old Testament? All of the rituals, all of the signs, you need all of those things to really be able to grasp this in depth. So it's easy for us to kind of give these guys a hard time. But on the other hand, we're a lot like them. Because in the church sometimes, before we reach people, we talk about the them out there and we expect them to look and act and talk and dress like us, don't we? And so it's a cautionary tale for us as well. Because I think you can be sincere and I think that these Christians who had come out of the Pharisees, who had come out of a Jewish background, I think they were sincere. But it's also true that you can be sincerely wrong, isn't it? Because this is what we've been talking about. This is the integrity of the gospel. We have to be sure that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. Gospel math is this. Jesus plus nothing is everything. Amen? His grace is sufficient. And the story of mankind has been the story of people trying to take Jesus and adding something to it. Jesus plus, and there's this situation, right? Jesus plus the Old Testament law and circumcision is a sign of that. That's what they wanted people to believe. There's others of us today, right? That sounds kind of crazy to us, but we might say, well, we expect people to attend church. We expect them to tithe. We expect them to go on a mission trip. Like we expect Jesus plus all of these things to prove that people are really saved. No, it's Jesus, period. His grace is sufficient. We are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And that's what's at stake in this moment. It is the integrity of the gospel. It's not Jesus plus tithing. It's not Jesus plus social justice. It's not Jesus plus even potluck dinners, as much as we like those. It's the gospel of grace. And it's scandalous and it's good. It's scandalous because the bent of the human heart, when we realize we're sinners, is for us to try to save ourselves. It's for us to try to say, but there's something, surely, that I can do. There's something that I can manufacture. There's some price that I have to pay. And no, over and over again in the New Testament, we see the early church holding firm to the gospel of Jesus, the exclusivity of the gospel of grace. And so not only at stake here is the integrity of the gospel, but also the, the unity of the church. In an age of outrage, you have to know what battles are worth fighting and which are not. We literally have social media platforms today that try to get us to engage a fight, that try to lure us in with things in our feed so that we'll get all worked up. You know why? So we'll spend more time on their platform so they can sell us more advertising dollars. So you've got to be wise. You have to know which battles are worth fighting. And the reality is, is this battle is worth fighting for the sake of the gospel, for the unity of the church. Because what's at stake here is not only the gospel, but also how God's people are going to get along, how the mission is going to move forward. Do you know what's at stake here? 
the world's first church split. That's what we would call it today. And right here, the church almost split into two camps. First Baptist Church of the Circumcision, which might be the world's worst church title ever. <laughs> Our First Baptist Church of the Gentiles. Like that's, that's what's at stake in this moment, this dispute for the gospel. And so what happens? Well, the early disciples and the apostles are like, we have to deal with this. Verse four, they arrive in Jerusalem. They're welcomed by the church. They, they report all that God had done. And there's always this guy in the crowd, verse five. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And so this leads us to our second point today. When the gospel crosses culture, gospel truth must be defended. We have to know where we stand. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, in an era of gospel confusion, we have to have gospel clarity. We have to be able to sniff out and identify the false gospels. We have to call them for what they are. Again, most people aren't going to come out and say, well, I believe it's Jesus plus all of these things, but that's exactly how they live with their lifestyle, with their words, with their way of life. And so in verse six, it says, the apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. I love Luke's wording in seven. After there had been much debate. You ever been in a contentious meeting before, right? So that is shorthand for they were into it with each other. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up. Oh, good old Peter, surprised that he's the first guy to talk. No surprise at all, based on what we know about his personality. But it's time. Peter is going to stand up. And remember, Peter, follower of Jesus, disciple of Jesus, Jewish background himself, and he begins to share this testimony. Brothers and sisters, you're aware that in the early days, God made a choice among you. I love how Peter phrases that. In other words, it wasn't my choice to go to Cornelius. Remember, it was the Holy Spirit who drew him into that conversation with that Roman centurion. He said that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. What a beautiful picture of how God is sovereign. It was God's choice to bring the message to the Gentiles, and yet God used Peter. It is God's sovereign choice, right, to declare his word and salvation among the peoples of the world, but he uses us. And so God had used Peter to bring faith to the house of Cornelius. And he said, he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. And then this is like the mic drop moment in the conversation, verse 10. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? What is Peter saying? Nobody's ever been saved by keeping the law because nobody can do it perfectly. You couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. So why are we going to make them do it? And then Peter boldly and clearly articulates a summary of the gospel in verse 11. On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. And the next verse, the whole assembly became silent. You could hear a pin drop. Now, you know it's a work of the Holy Spirit if you're in a room full of preachers and nobody talks. Like, it was one of those moments, like, whoa, Peter. And so, it wasn't quiet for long. Again, room full of preachers. Barnabas and Paul, they jump in, right? It's their chance. Hey, you've already heard us share the stories. Let us tell you about some of the signs and wonders that God did, right? Signs and wonders, not miracles for miracles' sake, but things that God did to affirm and confirm 
that the gospel indeed was on the move among the Gentiles. And then here's the kicker. James is the third guy to get up. James was the leader of the council. He was the half-brother of Jesus. He wrote the letter to James. He had a Jewish background. He lived in Jerusalem. This party of people who wanted them to follow the Old Testament law, they were like, oh, yeah, this, this is our trump card. This is our guy. Just wait till you hear him speak. Man, he's going to make sure you follow those Old Testament laws. And instead, James gets up and says this. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Simeon, which is Simon Peter's Hebrew name, right? So he nods to Peter's culture. Even Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. So he affirms the testimony of Peter. And what he does next is incredibly important for us. He connects it to the testimony of scripture. In other words, experience is fine. Experience is good. But our experience always has to be validated by the truth of God's word. And so what he does is he reaches for scripture, the book of Amos, and he quotes Amos. After these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. And so he recognizes in the prophecy of Amos in the Old Testament, Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, there was a prophecy about the Messiah. Talking about David, he would come of the line of David as the tabernacle was torn down. Well, it would be rebuilt. Translation, Christians instantly saw this was referring to the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. And when Jesus is resurrected, he is going to draw the Gentiles to himself. What James is saying as a guy with a Jewish background who knows the Old Testament backwards and forwards, it is there all along. This is exactly what the scriptures predicted would happen. And so the testimony of Peter combined with the authority of scriptures leads him to this verdict. Verse 19, therefore, my favorite word, therefore in my judgment, we should not cause difficulty for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. Praise God for that wisdom. Because for 2,000 years, You and I have been able to walk across the street. We've been able to get on an airplane and go across the seas. And we haven't had to say, hey, you've got to dress like us, look like us, act like us. Hey, you know all that stuff in the Old Testament about what you can eat and and don't eat, what you wear and what you don't wear, all these festivals and feasts that you had. We didn't have to say, you got to do all that stuff first, and then you can come to saving faith in Jesus. For 2,000 years, we have been empowered to go to the nations and tell them, Jesus saves. It's that simple. Nothing else but Jesus saves. And this leads us to our third point this morning. The gospel truth is defended here, but gospel love must also be demonstrated. A couple of weeks ago in Ephesians chapter four, I told you a mark of spiritual maturity is able to, the ability to speak the truth in love. And so James recognizes that he's got to hold the church together. The church needs to be unified. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest testimonies to the power of the gospel will be the ability of the gospel to unite both Jews and Gentiles. And so the church has to hold together. And so to that, he, being from a Jewish background, knows there are things that are deeply offensive to Jewish people. And so he calls on the Gentiles, those who have come to faith in Christ from their Gentile background, to abstain from some things. He said, verse 20, 
But instead, we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath day he has read aloud in the synagogues. Translation, all throughout the ancient world, in almost every community, there is a Jewish synagogue, and those people are sensitive to the laws of the Old Testament. So if you are with a Jewish believer, someone who has come to faith in Jesus Christ, and you normally order your steak rare, order it well done. Why? You might prefer it rare. And if with your Gentile buddies, you can eat it rare, but it's going to offend your Jewish brother. And so keep unity and stuff that's just preferential. Do whatever it takes. Strong echoes of what we talked about last week in first Corinthians nine, where Paul says, I'm willing to become all things to all people in order that I may win some translation, my preference, I'm willing to lay that aside. Why? Because I need to be able to sit down across the table with my Jewish background brother in Christ. And we, we need to be united. We need that relationship because we have something that's bigger than the way we were raised. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to be able to move that forward. Here's what's remarkable. Then the apostle, the elders with the whole church, right? Basically said, it's good. We're going to draft this letter. We're going to send some messengers. It was unanimous. Do you know how many church business meetings I've been in that have been unanimous? Virtually none. There's always somebody in every Baptist church who votes no just for the fun of it. When I was selected you know, to come to Brentwood Baptist Church as student minister 20 years ago, the vote was like 800 and something to eight. I was a little worried about that. I was like, who are those eight people? Should I be worried about them? They're like, oh, that's just one family. They vote no on everything, right? So what you're seeing here is a true sign that the spirit is at work because everybody agrees, man, this is good. They send out the letter. It says there were much rejoicing. Why? Because the gospel had been preserved. Love had been demonstrated. And this moment is so incredibly important in the history of the church because it really paves the way for Paul and Barnabas and Silas and these guys who would end up on the second mission journey. This happened after Paul's mission journey, but before the second, because we know on the second mission journey, if you trace it out, if you have time this week, read through the book of Acts and see how they encountered culture after culture in which they needed to preach the simple power of the gospel. And in the second mission journey, the gospel took a huge leap from Asia to Europe. Indeed, the gospel was going to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus said that it would. And here's the incredible thing. It began a movement from Acts 15 forward that has never stopped since. People of every culture hearing the name of Jesus, hearing the good news of Jesus. So what do we do with this? How do we apply this? I want to give you some practical handles today because I don't want you to sit. I want you to see it. Man, some of you are groaning. I thought that was good. The point is, is we can't just hear the word. We got to do the word. So let's recognize this first takeaway for us this morning. This is pretty incredible. God has brought the nations to us. So let's reach the cultures across the street. This is where some of us need to begin. We don't need to stop there. I'll talk about that in a minute, but this is where some of us need to begin. I grew up in a little town in Illinois. There was very little diversity. There were a couple of families that were there from other cultures, but I had virtually no framework, right? For other cultures. When I read these passages, because I grew up in the middle of Cornfield County, Illinois. And it's the ocean until I was 19 years old. Our world has dramatically changed in the years that I've grown up. 
People are coming to the United States from everywhere. God is bringing the nations to us. 2011 census, the United States is the most diverse place on the earth. We have more spoken language groups in the United States than anywhere else. Get this, 23% of Americans don't speak English in their homes. That's almost one out of four. But this, to me, was even more important. One out of five people in America, one out of five, don't know a single Christian. Now, that's stunning to those of us who live in Tennessee or in the South. But it's true. One out of five people, they, we all stay in our subcultures. And people move in, right? And they find other people in their subculture and they stay in it. So on a survey, according to Gallup, one out of five people when interviewed said, I don't even know another Christian by name. In other words, we think they're not out there, but they are. Several years ago, we hosted an international mission board intensive. President at the time, David Platt, right here from this pulpit, from this very podium, said these things. The city of Nashville has 90 people groups in it. 132 languages are spoken here. A third of the students in the metro school district do not speak English as their primary language. We are the largest Kurdish Iraqi city outside of Iraq in the entire world. Overton High School, this shocked me, is the most diverse high school in the United States of America with over 90 languages spoken in its hallways every single day. I would have thought it would have been New York City or Miami. No, right here in South Nashville is the most diverse high school in the United States of America. We are not just Music City anymore. Instead, God is bringing the nations to us. So what are we doing about it? Well, here at the Church of Station Hill, you've already heard Spanish interpretation. The largest ethnic group in Spring Hill and the surrounding area is Hispanic. And so we have started a Spanish interpretation ministry, a Spanish life group. Of a racial unity team that's looking at all how we reach all nations that God has brought our way. But one of the coolest things that we've seen God do, we stepped out on faith a couple of years ago. I know you look at our community, it doesn't feel diverse, but we started English as a second language. That program now meets on Sunday nights and Wednesday mornings. Get this, we currently have 42 students enrolled, 15 leaders from 11 nations. Right here at our little church on the side of a hill, people gather every week to learn English from Brazil, Colombia, Egypt, Honduras, Iraq, Mexico, Puerto Rico, Russia, Sudan, and Venezuela. God has brought the nations to us. And as we teach them a key skill for survival in our culture, English, we have the opportunity to build a bridge to them by which we can share the gospel. And we don't have to say, you have to do X, Y, and Z to be saved. We get to preach the gospel of grace to them. You know, tonight is an interesting night in our culture because as I said, we're supposed to walk across the street. Well, tonight's the one night of the year that your street will come knocking on your front door. And so you can go to the website, click on this banner that says 1031, Halloween, Reformation Day, whatever you prefer to call it. There is an opportunity today to welcome people, to get to know your neighbors. So make this your goal. There are some cultures in your cul-de-sac that you don't know about. Get to know them tonight. Spend time. For me and my family, one of our little traditions is we take the fire pit out of the backyard. We put it in the front yard. We put it on the driveway. We roast marshmallows and hot dogs. You know why? Takes a minute to roast a marshmallow or a hot dog. That means you get to have a conversation with somebody. You get to break the ice. You get to know them. Tell me about your kids. Tell me, you know, where you're from. Tell me all of these things. Tonight, use that as a catalyst. Again, there's ideas. Click on the banner. This isn't just one day of the year. 
But this should be us 365 days out of the year, missionaries in our own neighborhoods. I don't believe that you're in the house or apartment building that you're in by accident. God puts you there as light, as salt. You're next to the people you need to be next to for a reason and for a purpose. So get to know those neighbors and discover what that gospel purpose is. So recognize that for many of us, the first step is, Believing and recognizing that the world, the nations have come to us. So let's walk across the street and have that conversation. However, we should also go across the seas. And that's our second takeaway this morning. It's this. It's God has called us to go. The Great Commission says, go and make disciples of all nations. That word nations is not geopolitical nations. God was way ahead of us. No surprise. It was ethne. It's people groups. Across the world, there are 11,000 different people groups. 6,000 of those are what we would consider unreached, meaning there are less than 2% Christians among their population. Among that 6,000, there are 3,000 more that we would call unengaged, meaning that there is no gospel witness, there's no church, there's no missionary serving that people group. Jesus gave us a task He told us when he's going to return. Do you know when it is? The gospel will be preached to all nations, all ethnic groups, and then the end will come. So when we sit around looking at the brokenness of our world and we declare, come Lord Jesus, our impulse should not just be to be passive, but to be active. To say we have a task, we have a mission to complete. So let's go and reach these cultures across the seas. One of the things that we do to keep these people in front of mind for us is we pray for unreached people groups. We pray for unengaged people groups. We have a monthly prayer emphasis here at the church at Station Hill. Why? Because if we're not careful, we get in our little bubble and we forget the urgent spiritual needs that are all throughout the world. So we pray for them. Great story that I was told after the first service. Five years ago, we began praying for a people group in Africa. I can't mention them by name since we're online, but there were no believers that we knew that were indigenous to that people group. We began to pray for them five years ago. We have someone in this church who partners with a ministry in West Africa. Today, there are 656 disciples of Jesus among a totally unengaged people group five years ago. Yes, you can clap for that. Praise God. So your prayers matter. Aslan is on the move and we need to be a part of it. Part of the way that we see what God is doing is that we go. Thankfully, we just kicked back off mission journeys. We had a team go to Guatemala just a couple of weeks ago. Maybe a step for you is to go and see it in person. Next Sunday, no, I'm sorry, two Sundays from now. So you got plenty of time. Mark it on your calendar. We are going to have an international missions fair. First time ever we've done something like this at Station Hill. Three to five o'clock Sunday, November the 14th, over in Reed Hall. We're going to have about 15 different mission partners represented. You'll get to meet some global workers. You will get to meet some of our mission partners. You will get to taste some of their food. You will get to experience a little taste of their culture. You will get to hear about mission journey opportunities in 2022 because when we do mission journeys at Station Hill, let me be clear, sometimes mission trips have gotten a bad rap. We do not do mission tourism. It's not what it's about. We work with partners who were there long ago sharing the gospel. We partner with them. We find out what their needs are. We send teams to meet those needs. We know that those partners are there long after we're gone to continue to be able to follow up with them. But it's demonstrated. Most of our missionaries with the IMB, 
their first experience going cross-culturally was on a short-term mission trip. And that might be the step that you need to take. So it's as simple as this, okay? We're trying to make it easy. We want you to see it. So just walk down the hall in two weeks to Reed Hall and get to know some of our mission partners. Pray in 2022, where is God calling you to go, to pray, to give, to partner, so that we can be a part of what God is doing among the nations. We have one family. We've been praying for this since day one at Station Hill that God would call up families to send to the mission field, that if he would call missionaries out of our church. We have one family right now serving in Africa. We have a second family getting ready to go to Europe next year. Are you next? If you think you might be, our missions minister, one of our missions ministers at the Brentwood campus named Keith Holloway, was a missionary in Africa. He teaches a course called Engage Global. Leanne helps. I help with that class. Others do. To be able to think seriously about a calling to global missions, what that would look like, email us, get in touch with us. We want to let you know. Because here's the story, church family, and I hope you've heard this loud and clear. We are committed to crossing cultures. Why? Because the gospel is worth it. Because there are millions, billions of people who are dying in lostness and darkness. We have people who are willing to go. We've got to hold this end of the rope and we have to send more to go after it. The days, as we sang earlier, are getting darker. We feel the shadows deepen. What does that mean? The return of Christ is getting closer. So there has to be an urgency. We don't have time to waste. So don't sit, see it, pray give and go. Pray with me this morning as we close. Lord Jesus, in this moment, we know that your gospel is magnificent. The way the early church clarified, purified, proclaimed that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone was absolutely revolutionary. It's why Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Every other religion in the world is about what we do in order to earn our way to you. But Lord, you came to us in Jesus and we get to be messengers of that good news that we call the gospel. So Lord, thank you that you have made a way. Thank you for the passion and zeal of the early church to break down cultural barriers, economic barriers, political barriers, whatever it took to get Jesus to people. May we have that same heart. May we sit here and be moved and be challenged. Is it uncomfortable? Yes. Is it good? Definitely. So Lord, would you take our life and would you use it until all have heard the name of Jesus and it's in his name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Stand with us as we sing this morning.